Welcome to the second episode of My Junk, the newly reinvented My Junk, the new clean version, not clean, but uh, hopefully non-controversial. Um, in the last episode, I told you that My Junk has come back after we had various different issues um, related to stories I was going to tell. But here's the thing. I started my career as a high school teacher. I teach through stories, by engaging individuals, by sharing. And I, I, I can't not be a teacher. I'm sorry. I, um, I've been accused by bosses in the past that I am, all you want to do is educate. All you want to do is teach, um, which I don't think is a bad thing. I also want to learn. I want to understand what's going on so that I can try to um, grow and advance and, and then again, teach, share. I believe in the concept of, of education and then understanding and then respect. They don't aren't, it's not in that order. Um, you can have respect and still educate and understand. You can still educate and understand and have respect. You can work it on any way, but those are the three principles of the, of the idea. But so here's what I'm going to do. As I go through the next few episodes, I am going to hopefully share some interesting elements about my life, share some interesting things, and help enlighten. I'm not going to say teach. I'm not going to say educate. I'm not going to say instruct, because that's not really what it is. I want to enlighten people about what about the things that I have dealt with. Um, if you were original listener, you heard me break down cybercrime into six, maybe even seven key threat areas, um, you know, crime, espionage, uh, disruption or warfare, activism, manipulation, and, of course, regulation. Those are all threats. So, yeah, six. We'll stick with the six. That's the easiest way to approach it. And... I came to those decisions. I came to that idea. I came to that approach because of the years I've been doing this. I mean, it's almost 25 years that I've been in this field. And before that, I was, let's call me a bad guy, but not really a bad guy because it wasn't against the law. So I, I've been doing a lot. But here's the thing. The stories I'm going to tell you, like all stories, have a level of truth in them. They also have a level of falsehood in them. Um. I'll let you decide which is which. I will let you decide if I'm telling you the truth about what occurred or if it's false. Um, it's up to you. Um, I think it makes a really good story. It makes it interesting and it's, in, it's intriguing. So <clears throat> I will, and I apologize for the cough, but I will, I will share those with you and I'm going to go with that story. So for those of you who listened to the last episode, I told you again that I had to, uh, take a break because there was a cease and desist that it related to one of the stories I was telling. It was also that I received a really cool letter from Facebook telling me that my account had at one time, it doesn't say when, been the subject to an investigation by the FBI that they could not, they being Facebook, could not share the nature of that investigation at the time with which it happened. Now, the only way that happens is if you are under a national security letter, an NSL, 
or a true national security investigation. They believe either somebody you're talking to or somebody you're saying or something you're involved in has an impact on national security. It is not a criminal element as of yet, but it is, they need to keep it secret. They don't want that. They don't want me in this case to know that they were monitoring my Facebook account, which is funny because I don't really use Facebook. Um, Twitter, yeah, um, not as much anymore. Facebook, eh. Instagram, a little TikTok, those types of things have come into play, but I don't communicate with people that way. I mean, it's my email address, it's other things. And I said that that letter was a problem, that it, it scared me that it thinks. But what if it wasn't? What if that letter was actually the closeout to a 10-plus year investigation that I've been involved in? What if that was the sign, the note, the report that I was done, that I could quit, I could finish, I was over, that my my assignment had been complete or at least the investigation by which I was involved in was over. Now, for that to be the case, that would mean that I was still working for the FBI, right? It would mean that there was no easy way for them to, well, not easy way. There was no official way that they could put it on paper, um, but that all the work I had been doing since officially leaving the Bureau back in 2007 um, had come to a close. So I'm going to tell you that's what it was. This was the letter that told me that I was no longer being monitored, that the actions I was taking at the direction of the government were no longer occurring or were no longer needed or that I was done. You see, I had an account. I was an individual by the name of Idolin for a very long time. I was involved with a lot of stuff. And if I were to write this into the book, I would write this as the Idolin is dead. Now, I stole the Idolin from a book called The Poet. Um, but my character, my person, my persona is done. I am finished. I am over. For the last 10 plus years, if you were to track my jobs, my work, my focus, you might see a pattern. And I'm not just saying the fact that I work in cybersecurity. Because see, when I left the FBI, my first job was with a company that did kidnap and ransom recovery. They did investigations worldwide. They did personal security. I was a cyber guy. Why would I be there? And then from there, I go to MySpace, the first major social media player. I go to help them deal with an issue that addressed um, hackers attacking their stuff, but not in the same way you think. It wasn't, it wasn't disruption. It wasn't, well, maybe a little bit of crime. So let me stop there. Let me let me back this up. Let me give you an education on on cyber crime and or hackers, but also how law enforcement dealt with it. Now, the FBI is the Federal Bureau of Investigation. Their job is to investigate criminal activity 
and counterterrorism activity and so on after it has occurred. Before uh, 2001, before the 9-11 attacks, the FBI was strictly a post-incident investigation, meaning some criminal activity had to occur to get them involved to see what was going on. Um, they dealt with anything that impacted travel over, well, it's officially anything that impacts um, interstate commerce. That's what gives them their, their power. So if it somehow messes with it, that could be anything from, believe it or not, the Migratory Bird Act and whether or not, you know, people are shooting birds when they're traveling to the illegal destruction of um, refrigerators um, because it could impact people on either side of a, a state line to trucking, to drugs, to everything else. All right. There are other law enforcement units within the federal government that are focused on certain things. Um, the Secret Service is responsible not only for protecting the president and, and dignitaries, but also for protecting the treasury, uh, currency, and things of that nature. Um, DEA, obviously, Drug Enforcement Administration, ATF, alcohol, tobacco, and firearms in terms of the regulation of that. But the FBI is the premier investigative or was the premier investigative group. Now, when they're targeting criminal organizations, the stereotypical methodology is to identify all the criminals, um, to work from your low ends to your high ends, and take them out, eliminate that element. But that didn't work in cyber. It didn't work in cybercrime because, well, quite frankly, cyber hackers, let's call them the hackers, were not the stereotypical criminal. They didn't do what they did from criminal intent. When, when cyber attacks began in the early, let's call it the late, late 80s, early 90s, and I'm talking about cyber attacks in such a way that they were targeting to either disrupt services, this would be defacing websites, something of that nature, or actually maybe a little bit of, of stealing credit cards. There wasn't a market for the stolen credit cards. There wasn't an opportunity to really make money off of it. There wasn't um, a, a market for the disruption of websites. It was, can I do it? It was, let's call it vandalism, for lack of a better word. Um, because that's what it was, quite simply. It was, now it was, it was, virtual. I mean, it was in a computer, but this wasn't a massive worldwide crime at the time. It, it And the people doing it were not the criminals of that nature. And in fact, as you go through and you monitor and you check it all out, the cybercrime grew and the people who had the skills to do the things like gain access and steal stuff and so on, they did it for fun. They did it for interest. They did it to see whether or not they could do it. And then criminal elements, state-sponsored groups came in behind and said, guess what? You're going to teach us how to do this. Guess what? You're going to turn this into a... We created the market for, for stolen goods. We created the market for stolen information. And by we, I mean humans by pointing out, oh, my God, this is so bad, blah, 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 talking about it, giving them the opportunity, the functionality. I mean, most credit cards were stolen 
because you could use them during the dot-com boom and buy anything you wanted online because there was no system in place to protect them. There was the way we did credit cards at the time was literally a little machine, you know, that took an imprint of your credit card and you signed it. And it was all based off your signature. And as we escalated that in terms of technology and said, oh, well, we'll just take the numbers off the back of your cards and we'll just run them on through this way. And we'll just assume that, the, you know, you actually have the card present because that's how I got the number from you. We built this up. Now, wrap that back to the idea of law enforcement. Law enforcement, namely the FBI, started seeing this happen. They, they projected the threat model. They projected what was going to happen next. They saw the step-by-step-by-step progression of what was happening here. And we had to figure out a way to get involved, to get past the little fish, because all we really had at the time in 2000, 2001, 2002 were little fish. We had to be prepared for when this was going to be shifted out. And how this was going to be twisted and used and focused on it. But you can't target hackers the same way you do criminals. They're not drug dealers. They're not um, all from a particular socioeconomic class. They're not from a particular race. They're not from a particular gender. They are not from a particular location. They are worldwide. They can be any age, they can be any color, they can be any creed, they can be anything under the sun. And profiling them is only in that you can profile that these are individuals who had a gift for understanding, at the time, a complicated system, but also a gift for hacking which means using a system in a way that it had not been originally designed. So when I was tasked with targeting international hackers who were stealing credit cards and data and creating what at the time was called identity theft, but it was basically just fraud, And because it was rampant, the way that we decided to approach it was different. How do you join in with a group that is not centralized, that does not have a boss, that does not have a singular focus of contraband, a singular means of collecting contraband? What I mean by that is, you know, this isn't a drug cartel. All right. This isn't a stolen car ring. This is a group, a disparate group of individuals. So how do we target that? And how do you extend it out? How do you learn what they are doing? How do you understand what the next criminal element is? 99% of what we talk about in the cybersecurity realm today is about how the bad guys, bad gals, are breaking into systems. Very rarely do we talk about how they make the money. Do we talk about the motivation Now, of course, you're going to go, oh, well, they just need it. They just want this stuff. No. Look, before you you broke into credit cards, that's great. Now you have a a 16-digit number. 
All right. You have a dump is what it was called. How do you convert that to cash? How do you make money off of that? Right. And then once you learn how to make money off of it and you're doing it small, small time, because that's really what you're going to do. A couple hundred dollars here, there. Then it turns into a real business. How do I advance that? And as security comes into place and we make things harder and harder, how do how does the criminal element shift? How does the organization shift? My job was to figure out and determine how the bad guys and gals were profiting from this. What were they benefiting? What were they using the information for? How were they using the information? Where was it coming back to bite us? Now, sometimes you're right. It's credit cards. Big deal. But what if you were to be able to, say, steal the mine output from a diamond mine in South Africa? Where, where would you sell that information and what would its value be? That has been my role for almost 20 years is to identify that and work that. And sometimes that can be done from within, namely within the government, but sometimes that has to be done outside. You cannot be the bad guy in the minds of those hacking, meaning you can't be the law enforcement. I'll say this as I wrap up this episode. In the eight years that I was in the FBI, I don't know how many hackers I caught. I could probably look it up, but I can say this. Every single one that I went after confessed, with the exception of one gentleman who I actually did not get to a chance to interview in person, uh, but when we, when he, I guess when he found out that we had identified what he had done and what he was involved in, he actually took his own life. These are not hardened criminals. The people sitting behind the keyboard were not hardened criminals. Now you have an organization whose whole job it is to track criminals and work with the criminal minds and understand that. You have TV shows that think that they claim this and so on. No, they're not hardened criminals. They are chess masters. They are game players. They are individuals who are looking to work around the way the system is set up, finding new ways and different things to do it. Now, th their skill set becomes the weapon of criminals. It become it is abused, and law enforcement saw that coming. The feds saw that coming. And they put some of us in the position to help figure that out. So I will close there today. I thank you for listening. But again, if I were to write a book about this, uh, I would probably entitle it I, The Eidolon is Dead because my role in figuring out how the bad guys use what they stole has finally come to a close and it came with a simple notification that my Facebook account was no longer being monitored. <laughs>